New writing. New no. writing. New no. writing. No. New writing. You're no. listening to a podcast by New Writing No. What is going to screw us now is using terms like new normal because it immediately suggests that we can, in any outrage, we can normalize it by simply saying it's new normal. Hello and welcome to this podcast for the Durham Book Festival. My name is Lee Brackstone and I'm an editor and publisher. I've worked in publishing for 25 years and most of that was spent at Faber and Faber where I was lucky enough to work with the writer you have all tuned in to listen to, DBC Pierre. Hello Pierre, how are you? Hey Lee, how are you? Good to hear you boys. You too. Where are you calling in from? Uh, North Cambridgeshire in the fabulous Fens. If you don't watch the news, you wouldn't have realised that anything had changed up here. So I'm just burrowed in, uh, waiting for the zombie apocalypse. So at the risk of embarrassing you, Pierre, I've prepared uh, a brief introduction as if we were in the real world. If we could maybe even imagine that we were in the the glorious surrounds of the, the Durham Town Hall. Have you been to the Durham Town Hall? Of course, yeah. Um, I thought I'd just give people a little bit of, of history of, of our work together and, and, and your books, and then we can crack on and talk about Meanwhile in Dopamine City and um, just generally. When I first met Pierre in a bar in Balham in South London, I think it was the night before the 9-11 attacks on New York, wasn't it, Pierre? It was, was it? 10th of September, 2001. Yeah, and I was a young editor at Faber, and he was an unpublished writer soon to become a superstar writer. He'd written a novel called Vernon God Little, which had been submitted to me as a potential publisher. And I drank it in with the thirst of a man who needs a good, long, strong drink. I remember loving it and I desperately wanted to publish it. And thankfully, after an eventful night in the pubs of South London, uh, the end of which is, is murky, Pierre wanted me to publish it too. So we worked on the book together and we published it in January 2003. What do you remember about that moment, Pierre? That was amazing. It's still numbing. You know, it's like a fever dream. You know, it feels like that to give you the, the modern context. It's like the Tiger King part of lockdown in your mind. <laughs> you, know, when you just think back to this, this feverish, extraordinary moment. It was fantastic. First of all, we did have a very big night. Balham hadn't completely gentrified back then, and there were still some good dives. Well, I remember we were both completely skinned and kind of a, a, a very ignoble position for a publisher to be in. I mean, I think I was only 27 at the time or something, but I remember having to borrow a five or for a taxi. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it was a fantastic night. And I mean, of course, next day, still with a hangover on board, Literally, I think it was about one forty-five in the afternoon, which was just prior to the 9-11 attacks in New York. Claire, the agent for the book, phoned up with your offer, uh, which I immediately accepted and uh, jumped around. It did seem to both of us, I remember at the time, very bizarre timing, given the uh, the subject of the book, it being a Texan school massacre and a book about the uh, death row, etc. And it felt like it was sort of, it sort of dropped like a bomb in this moment of uh, a huge trauma in New York. 
the world shifted around its axis and around that book, which sealed its fate. Do you know what? I don't know if I ever told you this, but I found, I always kept notebooks with scribbles and stuff. And I found a very fervid note I'd scribbled to myself, basically to the effect that I was going to turn this into a book and I was going to try and scratch the clouds out of the sky and the things written in Spanish. But I discovered it and I dated it uh, September 11th, 1999. There was almost a temporal cycle running underneath there, bang, 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 bang. And of course, what followed that year in 2003 was, um, I suppose you describe it as a literary fairy tale, although I'd, I'd cautioned against um, wannabe debut novelists getting too excited by this story because it's a rare one, but, but Vernon God Little became the most celebrated book of the year, won a succession of prizes, including the Booker, and you found yourself on the road, literally from Slovakia to Sunderland, reading yes. from this book and making appearances and it was translated into 40 languages and it changed your life considerably didn't it yeah it did of course there, there was no time to to digest and calculate any of that and so it was uh, it was a hell of a juggling act and it went on for some years in the midst of which i was still trying to write and stuff so it was an interesting time i'm i'm extremely grateful yeah, it's a hell of a ride. And of course, we survived it. And here we are. And now we can still do stuff. And uh, it was fantastic. But it's probably not not recommended for somebody who hadn't spent their life thinking about this. I mean, I, I didn't really know anything about writing or publishing when I started. I had never at the time met a writer or an editor or publisher or anything. I had zero idea. And you know, I just put my best foot forward and tried something out. And so every single thing was a learning curve. I think there's something really beautiful about that and really hopeful that a new writer or, or any kind of artist can just land like that and, and make the kind of impact that, that you did. It was, um, it was an intuitive book that you wrote and it spoke to the zeitgeist. You know, you weren't chasing the zeitgeist. Public publishing had to catch up with you really at that moment, I think. Well, uh, extremely well published so that, that was something we did together thank you very much that was perfect and the amazing thing at the time you know obviously the book must uh, break a lot of rules and it was purely a work of spirit trying to get my spirit on the page but uh, the the small tweaks and the things that that you and Faber did with it left those that you decided it was it was a concrete enough spirit to leave them in and i'm eternally grateful for that because it, it probably could have taken a lot of a lot of work to hammer it into the type of form that would be expected and i kind of wondered if that would happen but you didn't do it you said it stands alone and that's oh. great so thank you well you you have to trust the artist's voice so the, the principal consideration in these matters but for, for people that don't, maybe are not so familiar with your career after that, over the next 15 years or so, we worked on uh, another four books, two of which were novels, which alongside Vernon formed a loose trilogy, which we referred to as the End Times trilogy. La Miller's Broken English was your second novel. And that was about two recently separated conjoined twins called Bunny and Blair, who bear more than a passing resemblance, I would say, to the labor leaders of the time. Gordon and Tony, 
which is not the last of several County Durham related riffs in this conversation. So we, you actually grew up there, didn't you, Pierre? I'd spent brief but significant times there, so I can't I can't really say grew up, but uh, I was there at crucial times. My mother made sure that I was there at crucial times. So if you add the time together, it's actually fleeting in time, and it might it might be a year or less actually. But of course, that is a long time when you're a kid, and there were some extremely poignant and pertinent things that happened there that actually set me in a strange way on the course to what I ended up doing. And, it feels uh, I didn't go to school there for a little while. It, yeah, it feels like to, to feels like to me that you've always had a very profound connection to the place and um, that painting that you just sent me is remarkable. How old were you when you painted that? I don't know. I'd be in my I'd be an adolescent or something. Actually um, I can't remember but one of the things I unearthed which is um, uh, which is pertinent it's just for visitors to the UK or even to Europe it's amazing how many people you bump into folks in the states and around the world and of course their vision of England if they haven't been here is you know the Queen and and Big Ben and Buckingham mm-hmm. Tower and, and red buses and stuff like that and fairy tale castles and the truth is I can't think of anywhere in the country that more fulfills the promise of this country as a as a place to visit than Durham does in terms of that incredible fortified hill with its castle and cathedral and the town kind of tumbling tumbling off of it down to the river and almost a moat that beautiful big coil of the river weir and people don't know about it they will go to so many different castles and places and you're really that is one stop shop and so as a kid that was incredible because um, it was the fairy tale was a uh, dungeons and dragons type of place i was absolutely fascinated not least of course that i was connected i have family uh, still there today with a fantastic bunch in my timeline and uh, uh, one of whom I was baptized with in the church in Carville uh, on the edge of Durham city. And, uh, and of course that whole crew, my aunts and uncles were there when I went to school there for a little while. And so it was the place I would have loved to have spent that whole time as it was, I got just enough, you know, I, I had the seed planted and I've gone back there whenever I can. I've been to as many, minus galas as I can across the years. Yeah, that was, I remember that year very fondly. That must have been 2003 or four, the summer when we went together. It must that have was, been, yeah. We've got a lot in common up there. We've actually got relatives down the same pit uh, in, yeah. in our history and uh, people from the same town. So it's a very interesting link. It's probably best we don't investigate that too closely. <laughs> <laughs> end up finding out we're cousins or something i always think of you as as a kind of quite a nomadic person but you you feel this very strong sense of place and belonging as relates to um to durham and what is it about the place do you think there's a human connection there's a link up there this was something i've touched on in in the piece that i wrote quite apart from the city and you know the, the amazing geography and architecture of the place 
there is among the people of that county and surrounds, I must say, but uh, specifically there, there's an extraordinary temperature of human being, uh, which my mum was really, really keen that I get to know. And it was as if, I don't think she did this knowingly, I don't think she would calculate this, but what she tried to do and, and what she actually did was make sure I knew that actually roots didn't have to be geographical so much as they had to be about the type of humanity that we came from and that we wanted to come from. And there's just something incredibly strong about the, the people there, strong, loyal, full of humor and full of wit, you know, folk that actually would give you the shirt off their back and who would fiercely defend you. And it's, it's beautifully reflected, actually. This, this was something I remember as a kid, how, how awesome it is the first time someone calls you our Pierre. Well, that's our, he's ours. And that's just a, a local habit. But you go, OK, there is, in, in using that piece of language, there's a sense of inclusion. And of course, the place I was born, Australia, that's a whole other set of, of links. But it's, you know, it's a more, a more spread out spot. And uh, I, I just hadn't experienced anything as close-knit as I found in Durham. And it was, it was specifically that, the human element and the extraordinary, the extraordinary links people will go to in constructing the right way to do things and to think about things and you know and the incredible humor they do it with as well it was just stolid as hell and once you grow up a bit and you understand that actually in a very real sense county durham and its surrounds are the heart of the industrial revolution they're the absolute heart of the modern day in a sense but they also have the agricultural thing that's still going on that, that lives alongside that don't they absolutely yeah and that was my granddad that started out on a farm actually down near the the border with north yorkshire and had come up into town and that started a family a kind of a family oscillation of great privilege to great poverty to great privilege to great poverty which kind of ancestrally has whipped down through me as well and uh, I've refrained from having any children so as not to subject them to any more of the ancestral whip. I figure each, each one of us is the lash end of, a, of an ancestral whip and you get all kinds of, the just, you know, the strange dynamics that can travel down through, through generations and uh, it traveled down through my granddad, through my mum and through me and it's like actually it needs to stop there because that's a hell of a wild ride and that's got nothing to do with Durham that's just our particular branch of the family. So should we talk a little bit about the new book which I'm incredibly impressed by and envious of whoever got to edit it at Faber who succeeded me. It's a very strange experience reading the book it being the first book that you um have published without me as your um as your wingman for for good or bad but it's an incredibly timely and of the moment book as pretty much all of your novels 
have been. It's called Meanwhile in Dopamine City. It was published last month. It perhaps, I suppose, echoes the world of Vernon Godlittle most, but it is very much radically its own thing, radically inventive, linguistically. Makes me think about what you were saying about the, the use of that, that phrase, our Pierre, and if that was, that, yeah. was that the first time that you really kind of started to look at language and think about language, and because this book is partly all about language, isn't it, and how it's sort of meaning has fallen apart. That's a good point, actually, yeah. And people forget that all, all of human life and all of human construction socially is built with ideas. Of course, we don't know the future and the past is completely open to interpretation. And so it's a very, very insecure place that we live in as creatures. Um, but thankfully, we have the intelligence and what we've done is build actually a, a second world, a text, which is completely formed of ideas. And these ideas actually alter brain chemicals. They, they form part of the way that we act towards each other. And so it's absolutely obvious that the words we use and the way we structure our language will completely affect the way that we deal with each other and the outcomes that we actually have in the real world when we do stuff. And you're absolutely right. Of course, now information is the new battleground in the world and is the new wealth. And it has been taken from us with all the zeal of the early Spanish conquistadors who simply uh -huh. saw empty lands with indigenous peoples and took them for themselves and declared them theirs. And that has happened to information. Who are the present day conquistadors? Oh, the present day conquistadors are the big tech companies. Yeah. This is kind of the last novel in that series of modern day dismay, if you like, because I think regardless of everything else that's happening, there is a lot going on and there's a lot of social change trying to happen. And we've also got the blight of this virus upon us and etc. But actually, underneath all this for the future of self-determining humans, there's only one battle left, which is already kind of half lost. And that is the battle for our own data and for information about us and about our behavior, mm. which is being by declaration taken from us, being harvested by surveillance devices, including these that we're using <coughs> to speak right to now today. Yeah. yeah, and uh, is being used to make psychological models, make personality models, with a view to later controlling uh, outcomes by modifying our behavior. And that is the stated goal. And it's uh, the type of thing that, if it were launched all in one go, would be extremely illegal and would cause an incredible outrage. But it's happened inch by inch by inch by inch until now it's a little bit unstoppable. And uh, I just wanted, in, in the case of this book, Dopamine City, I wanted to book the last old school guy. And that's where it is kind of a bookend to Vernon. And it's a shame that, uh, that you weren't there for the very, I mean, you were there up to the, you know, the, the last moment of this, but it's a bookend to Vernon in that it's just the last stand up guy in the world who has an old set of values 
uh, it, it would be a guy born in the 1980s. This is Lon Reagan, the character you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Lonnie, the the protagonist of the book. Yeah. I just wanted to show one guy with a set of values which we have had up until a decade ago and more or less agreed upon. And I just wanted to throw him into the deep end of of the modern day as almost like a flag in the sand because, unfortunately, speaking of language, what is going to screw us now is using terms like new normal because it immediately suggests that we can, in any outrage, we can normalize it by simply saying, it's new normal and it's like well, no, a lot of this is not normal and should never be normal but uh we're on a vertical curve and it's um it's going to be very hard to stop it we're kind of numb to it now i mean the terrifying thing is these companies this way of communicating of harvesting data of exchanging information um has only existed for 25 years what do you think the purpose of is there a sinister purpose behind this do you think because they, you certainly get that sense in the book. There is a sinister purpose. I mean, what's happened, which people don't really, everyone thinks, first of all, that under EU rules, you can opt out of, you can say no to certain things. That doesn't matter. We now have discovered, you know, the, the functionality, which is called essential for all these services, will completely harvest anything it wants from you, um, including your voice, your face, your feelings. Uh, your blood pressure, if if it gets access to that information, your bowel habits, who you associate with, the credit ratings of the people you associate with. This is very rapidly growing into a farm of people. And what we don't realize as we think, okay, well, it kind of doesn't, it's invisible, first of all, so there's there's no obvious immediate effect. But something very, very crucial has happened in only the last in about 2003 and it is that we have stopped being the client you know if you think back to the good old days when our biggest problem was watching too much tv and and having to <laughs> having to withstand you know mouth-watering foods in advertising and all the things trying to to snare us to consume the thing is society was in a pact with the market then in that the market said we're going to serve you and we're going to tempt you as much as we can but you are the customer and you know at the end of the day if you don't want it if you're not going to buy it then we have to live with that what has happened with big tech is that a few years ago about when vernon was published we stopped being the client of these services and so they're no longer they no longer need us in the equation in terms of consuming the service because the service is becoming ubiquitous now there's a second market behind the service where they're selling our behavior as a prediction product mm -hmm. to a market in order to guarantee sales and to guarantee consumption and so we're no longer the client with there's no longer a social contract with the market and that is very new and very unusual uh, we're just the farmed product and it doesn't matter if we consume or not because if they don't get you this way they're going to get you that way there will be 
something you use will be ubiquitously will be harvesting your your behaviors you know i mean there's a new you know the Roomba vacuum cleaner the little automatic vacuum cleaner the new model of that has a camera on it and part of its essential functions is to map the interior of your house and also to to record data and send it back and sell it in a pact with big tech in the back and so anything with smart in the name of it is going to get you and you know you can imagine within the next decade anyone who is young today will be completely owned and will be manipulated by the market because they will know your weaknesses and you know how dangerous it is to give your weaknesses to someone who doesn't love you to use the phrase du jour how do we break the circuit of that what what can we do to to take back ownership of our of our lives of our information of our relationships or is it too late knowing you very well and, and regarding you as a, as, a, as a great friend i never think about you as a pessimist i think of you as an as, a, as an optimist but buoyant, you know, yeah. these are dark ideas there's are ideas that i subscribe to and it, and it and it's and it's fascinating to to hear you talk about it in a much more articulate way than i could manage but do you have any hope that we can escape this pax that we entered into 20 years ago with technology and and social media well here's the thing we never entered into a pack and this this is at the, at the root of the problem is that the decision was taken out of our hands we were regarded and our behavior is regarded as a virgin territory free for the taking and under the guise of we're using words like personalization we have very unwittingly entered into this and we need to a first of all be aware obviously we like our devices i love the technology i'm not anti-tech i think some of these are great ideas but you don't use social media at all do you i don't use social no because it's date rape facebook is date rape facebook experiments with you already you know as much as i think they're cool toys there's no particular reason for me, first of all, to do that. And uh, I think what's going to happen in the first in first of all, we need to be aware of the extent. And I think people just aren't aware of the depth and especially of the forward plans. It goes all the way back to B.F. Skinner and you know radical behaviorism, which posits that all human life is accidental and that we're basically ignorant and, and should be controlled. There's a line hey. in the book, I think I'll, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it, but I remembered it, it stuck, stuck, it stuck with me, which was, we seem to have forgotten that we're here to eat and not be eaten. No, we're being farmed. And I, particularly the book is about the guy trying to raise kids, because if you have kids, if your kids have a device, um, they are being farmed. And by the time they're adults, all their weaknesses, all their bodily functions, all their friends, all their dreams, hopes, will be owned not only owned by big tech but will not be accessible that's the other thing that data does not belong to us it belongs to them by their own declaration and so there's there's a huge uh, secret divide underneath all this which is really scary i mean in the medium term what's going to happen of course is it will entrench an elite in the same way that any new industrial phase in history does uh, whereas we the knowledgeable ones for instance 
your bosses at big tech companies are not going to have their behavior raped in this way. And anyone in the know, anyone with an education enough will be able to at least thwart it and uh, at least make it difficult to get a complete picture. But it just is such a shame because this could be a real human emancipation. People are suddenly getting used to using their voices. Uh, we can contact each other. It's been a godsend in the current year of the virus that we can all still be in touch. And I mean, these are very cool tools. And it's such a hell of a shame that for the sake of profit, there is no darker motive than that. For the sake of immense profits, uh, that it has to be such a date rape, the whole thing. Microsoft is now doing it. Facebook, obviously, is that Google is the, the ringleader of all this and the inventor. It needed one of them to say, Do you know what, I'll be happy with just $10 billion. And why don't I start a platform where the data belongs to you? There's actually a great book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which was released last year. But it points out, I mean, the scary thing about all of it isn't even so much that this can happen because, of course, wherever profit can see a way, it will go there. Um, the scary thing is that we've normalized the ideas around it um, as if we accept that somehow we owe that data to strangers. And that book spoke of back in, I think, 2001 or so, but early in the, in the century, an experiment to build an aware home, which was like a, a smart home where all your appliances gathered data from you to discover your behavior, but with a view to learning and making things easier for you. So the lights went on when you needed them and the heating came on and all of this. But that experiment was designed completely to make sure that those data never left your house. It was absolutely just taken for granted that, of course, those data belonged to you and they would stay in your control and in your house. They were not connected to any external internet because it just, think back a few years, it's not something you would think. I mean, why would it go to a stranger? That's ridiculous. And that little experiment was used as, as an example of the last moments when we thought that way without even having to make a decision. Of course, we don't want data leaving our house if it's about us and our intimate behavior. You think about it, you know, your intimate behavior, your arguments, the things you wish you hadn't said and done, which we all have, you know, every week of our lives. That is, that is stuff you don't want out of the house. And somehow in our thinking, we've kind of gone, well, it's kind of okay. If it's in return for we, we think it's in return for free services, and it's absolutely not. The sense in the book is that we become, we become dehumanized and we, um, we will forget how to regret things like that. We've also forgotten how to embrace an idea of mystery in our lives. I think it's that everything is explained, and this is one of the other we've dived into to talk about. It's such a, there's so much going on in the book. You know, it's um, polyphonic. We've gone straight to talk about the themes, but perhaps talk to people about what the book is actually about and then how the book is structured. Because formally, it's incredibly interesting because it allows you to talk specifically about how algorithms dictate our behavior in our lives. The book itself is algorithmic. I called it an algorithm 
but we didn't obviously we didn't put that on the cover i know if it if it were in on your desk you'd say okay take that off as well but um, <laughs> well i um, about it first <laughs> yeah no i'm a natural i'm a natural allegorist i just love that the means of expression reflect the thing being expressed i just think that's that is a it's a snake eating its tail of course but uh the work itself had to be an algorithm and uh, it is numbered. It's mathematically sound. Uh, there's some numbers in there you'll note. And if you take those numbers and compute them on a graph, they should form an immense flowering rows of all the pages. So if you take the number of each each mathematically numbered section of the book will turn into a rose of gold, which is something we never should have to do, but it was important to me that it be able to do that. Why was it important to you? Uh, it made it a thing of beauty. The thing is, we're also living through a really throwaway time, like a get over it, what the fuck, whatever mm. time in history, where we can very easily dismiss centuries and millennia of, of uh, development in favor of whatever instantly looks better. And so I was extremely conscious uh, setting out on this that it had to be a lot of work. It had to be really, really uh, meticulous, this book, in the sense of making it clean and making it strong and making it, if possible, beautiful in ways that don't necessarily influence the reading but it had to be a bigger object just to go against the grain. You know, like it would have suited being a Twitter novel or something like that, where you just go, okay, whatever, that's it. And I thought, no, this almost has to be like a, a, you know, a 19th century job from a garret where you literally almost carve each letter with a chisel. I felt I had to go through that in order to show my sincerity about the statement the book is making so that's not just a, that i'm passing judgment the same way that everyone is now passing judgment on fleeting top of mind things uh, but rather that this was a considered and sincere story you know and also some fun so i engineered it to be as fun uh, as possible while traveling through this this little algorithm I designed it to be like a roller coaster, so it has uh, it has a long a long setup. I think there's about 130 pages of setup. Yeah, which is, is your car going uphill? Click 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 to to the first uh, plot point, and then it just unleashes into into the new world and uh, goes up and down, up and down, and eventually spirals out of control at the end and spits itself into a conclusion. So can you talk a little bit about the form and whether the story or the form came first? Because around uh, a third of the way in or so, about 130 page mark, the book splits into two columns, one of which runs two thirds across the page and the, the right hand justified paragraph runs right down the page. And it's a sort of news feed. And um, I found that absolutely compulsive and the relationship between the two texts really illuminating and um it's a kind of really magical 
structure and it how did you intend people to read it because i tried reading it in lots of different ways and i found different ways rewarding some ways frustrating but it keeps you really keeps you on your toes in terms as a reader to to cross-reference the the two narratives so which came first the story or the or the form and how did you intend it to be read the story came first and actually unbeknownst to you i could have probably delivered this a year earlier but for my feeling that the book didn't it didn't express our our entry into such a binary life which take away all the the dangers in in the background of uh, of surveillance uh, we have undoubtedly entered a binary life where we're not only dealing with the things in front of our eyes and within reach of our hands but now we also have the phone or the screen and we have situations at a distance and they can be important situations. They can be a love affair. It can be an important purchase. They all this other stuff, news. We've taken to it like, like ducks to water. The fact that our life is now split into the immediate here and now and some, uh, you know, some nominal virtual other place. We're very biddable, aren't we? We really are. I mean, it's fun. The other thing, too, is that life can be a drag. I mean, it's fucking difficult to be in possession of a brain when you're a human. And <laughs> isn't it, though? You know, we should be doing this, I mean, especially in, in, in modern society. Think about it. How many of us are actually going, I should really be doing this, but, but I'm not going to. I'm actually going to do something else. And those little pressures and, and mind fucks. Uh, just so constant that of course we love a distraction as well and this is just a great way to go with you know what I, I have to look at the news or i have to ping someone on whatsapp it's a great way to actually get out of the duties of the mind and to think too much about stuff thinking could be really disappointing i, I think a lot and generally speaking if you think things throughout great length across days and weeks you know, it's unusual to come to a happy conclusion about stuff. No, you you always end up in a melancholic place, yeah. We're, we're constantly on the run from ourselves as well. And these devices play into that completely. That's human nature and that's a different issue. And it probably would be enough of a problem by itself without there being any dark agenda going on. But uh, it was important for me that the book express our departure into that binary world where one thing's happening here something else happening somewhere else but they, they do kind of influence each other and hence i went back and spent an extra year to build uh, two-thirds of it in a binary form and the way to read it um first of all you don't have to read it and i made i i took great care um to make sure that the story what happens is that the narrative the story continues but it gets quicker the roller coaster goes downhill from that point and it turns binary but you find yourself with two columns on a page on the left is the narrative continuing story with all the same characters and on the right are is a news feed with snippets from that world now they grow increasingly relevant to the story and they sometimes influence what's happening in the narrative but you do not have to read it you can actually just read that narrative and speed through it like a roller coaster ride and 
the thing is you will be aware as you do that that something else is happening on the right hand side you don't have to read it uh you can mm -hmm. ignore that that awareness will still give a sense of of uh, binariness if you do read it people have different techniques you can i myself would tend to read the narrative because it still it has a plot and i would follow the narrative to an actual conclusion for the duration of one voice yes and then go back when it comes to a natural kind of chapter yeah. break and then go back and catch up on the news you see yeah. we've also made the the strength of the text there the actual strength of the ink fades in and out according to the pieces that are more important to the narrative than others and so you catch out of the corner of your eye you'll catch a sentence or a little chunk of writing which which just shows you that life is has split in two and will eventually come together in some way i think as a device it's very representative of the experience of life because i i found the right hand news feed narrative very compulsive and sometimes toxic ridiculous but i sort of became dependent upon it it was a separate it is a separate narrative and it was a separate narrative experiences but if you don't mind i might read one of them just to give people a little flavor this this is the this is probably my favorite i mean it's quite um it's quite a silly one but i think you'll like it do you mind is that okay yeah go for it so it's on page three four one each of these news feeds they're brilliantly structured to um how, how many words are they pierre maybe a hundred yeah there'll only be a hundred words yeah something like that it's it depended completely on the space i mean they're a formatting nightmare you know they had to be adjusted to to not run over the page but they're not very long anyway yeah they're bite-sized everyone's broken their head on this year we had kate ward we had uh, sylvia crompton uh oh, also yeah yeah a precise uh copy edit and of course literally if you change a comma or a full stop add or subtract one it can throw 200 pages out of format and <laughs> so everyone would go and have their have their little play of it and then i would come back and build that up and then dear kate ward had the final job of uh, of getting it into a publishable form which she did admirably well she's a real pro she's uh, done that for many of my books over the years for which I'm very grateful. But I just want to read this one because like all of your books, they're very funny. And um, this illustrates that, I think. So here we go. An intriguing new study has found that the testicles of men such as welders who routinely work with heat are up to 30% larger and heavier than the average man on the streets. The effect is thought to come about through internal temperature regulation as testicles are designed to hang to maintain a lower temperature than the body. In cases of males in close contact with heat, the testicles may expand and grow heavy in order to achieve more separation. Although one scientist who studied welders has admitted that results are purely empirical, saying that welding may simply be chosen by people with larger testicles. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I love that. I know what I love about it is it is it lasts as long as the can when you're listening to the to the today program and then the news headlines and then that's pretty much the way the headlines work you know that's the duration yeah. of them it's also it is the, the sort of the ridiculousness of of how we feel we can measure everything the fact that 
actually everything in life needs to be explained. Um, and yeah. that goes back to what I was saying about there being no mystery. There's not even any mystery about testicles anymore, you know, a welders. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Just to put that into context for everyone, there is a scumbag welder in the book. And this is to say nothing bad about welders. He just happens to be a welder. And um, <laughs> at a certain point, he becomes uh, quite famous. And the news starts reflecting his fame by feeding in, by feeding him with uh, incredible welding stories that make him even more of a nightmare. I really love that. But I mean, there are there are there are dozens of those news feeds um, I could have put, picked up, and they're very addictive and and um, a true flex of life. Which brings something else that I wanted to um, ask you about is the. When Vernon was published, it almost seems sort of quaint to me now that people talked about it as a satire, because I don't really feel like you can do satire anymore, can you? I mean, do you feel, do you see yourself as a satirist? I mean, I don't think this book is a satire. I think it's something else. We've moved beyond yeah. satire, haven't we? Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. We had this conversation uh, more than once back in the day. I agree with you that, uh, yeah, satire is long dead. It's impossible to satirize where we're at. Uh, due to it being the new normal and tomorrow will be the next normal mm. and none of them will resemble uh, the the quite strict uh, confines of common sense that that we once had things worked out better when we kind of agreed with each other on a few bases so if if satire no longer does what it needed to do it once did which was to hold a mirror up to the world and try to I suppose teaches how to be better people or how to look at life in a more empathetic way. And I don't think either of us are excited by social realism in a or naturalism in a literary or fictional form. Where does the novelist go to remain relevant? As you uh, rightly point out, it's quite ridiculous, this book. Uh, its premise is quite ridiculous, and for that reason, I call it photorealism. Mm -hmm. I'm going to borrow a term from the visual arts and say that's absolutely painted from life um, as accurately as I can depict it. And so it's a new kind of, it's hyperrealism. Yeah. The other interesting thing about the book is you've chosen to set it, it's, it's an anonymous setting, isn't it? The other thing to mention, actually, behind all of these arguments, of course, is that um, all the issues that that are filling our time, notwithstanding the virus, uh, are happening in an Anglo bubble. And so the rest of the world has a completely different uh, uh, viewpoints, thank God, due to their languages in large part and their cultures. And they have they're actually not encumbered by uh, half of the uh, head fucks that we are. And so I, I wanted the place to be, although it does, it has the rhythm of America um, and, and has a little bit of an echo of, uh, of Vernon Godlittle, just to be a bookend for that whole phase. Um, I wanted it to be an anonymous Anglo small city, which could have been here or, or USA or Australia or any of these places, you know, Canada. Some of the language feels um, Australian, but does it worry you? Does it scare you what's happening in America right now? Or do you feel like this is a sort of an, an inevitable unravelling? 
Yeah, you know what scares me? I'm going to be selfish and plead the Fifth Amendment in terms of the election, if that's what we're talking about. I used to, very recently and for, for all of my drinking life, I have been able to sit at a bar and make friends with a Democrat on one side and a Republican on the other. I want those days back again, no matter what happens. I've never seen our culture so divided over so many things. That's because we're offending each other. The gloves are really off and not helped by these top of mind tools that we have to communicate fragments of top of mind ideas, which completely, uh, completely negate consideration, which is the basis of all civilization. The mm. fact that we can count to 10 before we say fuck off. And in fact, then not say fuck off, but suggest a third alternative that has been blown to hell by our gadgets. And we're using those gadgets and governments have made the mistake of also using them. And we're using them now for matters of extreme importance, including nuclear fucking disarmament and pinging barbs at each other like school children. A book came out a few years ago called I Hate the Internet mm-hmm. by Garrett Kobeck. Uh, which is a huge fun and it apologizes for itself uh, not being a novel. It is a novel, but what it is primarily is a, just a really, really deliciously structured gloves off rant about the internet. And it makes the point that uh, early on that anyone who uses these tools is immediately made an adolescent. Yeah. Anyone on the internet is a teenager. And I think that's absolutely true. And now, you know, our police forces use smileys and emojis and adulthood used to also have connotations of uh, responsibility and authority. And we've completely thrown that out. And hence, yes, what we're saying about the divisions in Anglo society, I wanna be able to sit again at a table with uh, my black mates, my female mates, my Democrat mates, my Republican mates, you know, my trans mates, everyone, and have a good time. And actually, the people I know personally, I can uh, still do that with, but we're an elite now. We're an elite. I'm scared, not so much for the physical goings on at the moment as for the fallout from them. And I'm not sure that we'll survive that because we keep saying it's new normal and you go it's not we should regard this as a bad year and a bad time in history or we're going to have the worst century we have ever seen i remain optimistic but we are going to have an appalling century the the ground is far too well laid it's true that on an individual level global poverty is less than it has ever been i mean this should be there should be times of real milk and honey for all of us. And there are resources enough for everyone. And notwithstanding the challenges of being on this planet, we actually have everything we need in such incredible abundance. And it seems very likely that we'll take it for granted. And uh, you know, the ground is just too well laid for, for conflict ahead. Look how many important countries are becoming authoritarian, totalitarian, how many democracy has taken a hell of a hit in just the last two and three years around the world. Think about this. Speaking of speaking of the North and, and what makes this country and the modern world great, why is the USA so wealthy 
and the countries to the south of it in Latin America, not wealthy, but poor. And the answer is the people who populated the USA came from a place where, despite any kind of chaos, strict rules of law and particularly law governing treaties and properties were well respected. And hence, it drew investment. Hence, in the USA, you knew that when you bought something, you owned it and it would be protected with the power of the state and with the power of law. And the country grew wealthy as a result of that. Further south, they came from a Spanish kingdom, the original conquistadors. They brought those ideas, and those ideas have run through what were actually quite non corrupt, incredibly noble cultures. And they remain still struggling. And it's because of property rights, it's because of a flexible and non existent power of law. And so we're having this conversation at a moment when Britain, without any irony, is saying, well, you know, we're going to breach, we're going to breach an international law in order to fix things up for ourselves. And I'm not going to enter the specific argument. The point is that it's just one of the things that is, um, I think, is part of the baby in the bathwater. There's a lot of bathwater traveling around at the moment, and there are a lot of fucking bits of babies in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's a collapse of old structure. And you go, on one hand, well, of course, things needed adjusting and f fine and dandy, but uh, to collapse everything from scratch without having first denuclearized or at least kept those treaties strong, I think is a big mistake because, uh, you know, there are far too many weapons around. So scary. Listen, I was born, I was actually in the USA the year that JFK was shot. It wasn't me. <laughs> I was in the USA when Martin Luther King was shot and uh, I was there for the Cuban Missile Crisis or I was alive for the Cuban Missile Crisis and I grew up with that little shadow of nuclear threat from the USSR. Mm -hmm. It was nothing near as threatening as the conditions we now live in uh, for the simple fact that there were statesmen, there were people of grave mind still involved and there were agreements and treaties and efforts and there was diplomacy is what I guess what I'm saying. And there the ideological lines were clearly drawn weren't they? I mean we're now just in the age of, of universal disinformation. Yes exactly right. It's true there were ideologies that uh, that protected uh, that, that protected the status quo in in some respects. Well, look, Pierre, we've probably used up our allotted time. It's been a real pleasure. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for commissioning this book and for giving me the, the freedom to, to have this mad exploration. And this was kind of like running alongside a moving train because, of course, times are changing so quickly that I needed, I needed to be ahead of them at least by a year or two to just get a handle of where things could go in future and make some predictions and um, uh, thanks for all the space to do that and uh, i will deliver your reward in amber fluids over the over the bar or pub one day good i look forward to that moment take care mate see you later thank you very much <laughs>